3,451, and I just realized something looking at that. I, I guess we're kind of sort of heading for a landmark episode. Um, I guess a real big next landmark episode is quite a way off in the future, a little over 1,500 episodes of you know, episode 5,000. That would be a pretty big deal. Um, but 3,500 just kind of feels like it. maybe we'll do something special. I don't know yet. Uh, we've done some other episodes like that where we had people call in and tell their story or whatever. They will do something with that. That's still quite a ways off. But every once in a while, I kind of have to pinch myself and be like, you know, we've we've really been at this 16 years almost. Like, it'll be 16 years in June. And uh, it's a great blessing. So let me say something I don't say enough. Thank you. Thank you so much to everybody in this audience, past, present, and future, who has helped me live this life. Thank you so much, because I couldn't do it without you. It's not just, you know, watching and paying attention and sharing, but those of you that financially support us uh, by becoming members of a member's brigade, doing business with our sponsors, uh, working through TSPAS to do that, sharing the show with others, uh, liking, following, etc., and sharing our posts. Like, all of that together has added up to an amazing... Uh, community instead of sub-communities, and me being able to do what I think is the thing I'm supposed to do, teach. I would have never made a good teacher inside the public school system, though when I was young and naive, I actually considered it for a while, and I just knew intrinsically this, if I hated being there, I would hate being there even more or having to work there. Um, but I always knew that teaching was what I really wanted to do, teaching and training. And uh, that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about redefining our educational paradigm and doing so with practical down-to-earth this is things that people need to know people need to learn like i think that we could easily make a book there would be a thousand things that anybody in the modern world should be able to know and do by the time we're 20 for instance and i want you to i'm starting a series today that's why it says part one redefining education part one and so this is going to be a series and it, I am going to come at this from the stand, the view of a grandfather who is helping to homeschool his grandchildren. So a lot of this will be projects and things that you can do with your kids. I don't have any kids. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you a bet right now. Even in this audience, which is better educated in real-world life skills than the average you know, person in the world today, it's almost inconceivable to me that there won't be at least two things in every episode from this series that most adults won't be like, yeah, I really don't know how to do that. I really don't know how to do that. And so if you have kids and you're teaching your kids how to do things, the first thing you have to do is learn how to do them yourself. And if you, you don't have kids, then pick the ones you don't know how to do and learn. Because... There's nothing here that you shouldn't be able to do after 13 years of education in K-12 through education. But almost none of it you will learn in K-12 through education today. And unless you're as old as me, you probably didn't. And I'm going to tell you the truth. 
most of the things that we'll cover, I probably did learn in school. At least to a de- at least I got exposed to it. At least I got exposed to it. You know, like there's a whole list of things that you will not be able to do when you get out of school today. Uh, and I don't mean like you're not allowed to. I mean you 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 just won't know how. We have kids that are in school, kindergarten through twelfth grade, 180 days plus a year, seven to nine hours a day, depending on where they go to school, giving up at minimum nine hours of their life a day during that period of time because they have to get to school, they have to get home, they have to deal with waiting for things and stuff like that. And then on top of it, the average kid is getting an hour and a half to two hours of homework once they get home. So then add another hour and a half to two hours of their life they've given up in what's supposed to be the prime of their life when they're supposed to be enjoying and exploring and really learning their studying shit. And I mentioned this yesterday, but you know the only proof we need that the majority of things we force children to memorize and regurgitate on a test are completely useless is the game show called Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? And if you've ever watched that show, and we, we did a little bit when it first came out, they don't put stupid people on that show. They don't bring somebody out and be like, well, Billy, tell us about your life. Well, you know... I do odd jobs for a living. I graduated to 11th grade, but never made it through 12th. It's always people with like college degrees that have professional careers and generally upwardly mobile, high-income earning professionals. And then you give them a fourth-grade science question or a third-grade history question, and well, they get it wrong. And in today's day and age, we have all these videos of like people going to college campuses and saying how many states are there, and the people don't know. Or I saw one yesterday. They were asking these girls at a college, if you're driving 80 miles an hour, how long does it take to go 80 miles? And they don't know the answer. Or maybe I'm oversimplifying. I think it was something like. If you're if you're driving 80 miles an hour, how far do you? How long does it? Yeah, it was what it was. It was how, yeah. If you're driving 80 miles an hour, how how long does it take you to go 80 miles? And they were saying things like an hour and a half, two hours. Couldn't figure it out. Like I know what you want to like paint those people to be that stupid. They're not. They're mostly they were highly successful people, and it's because we make kids learn all this minutia and bullshit. So we we send kids into this system to teach them. Let me give you some things I came up with today, just off the cuff, that the average kid at 18, and I've hired them, so I know they can't do these things. They don't know how to cook a meal. I'm sorry, microwaving Kraft macaroni and cheese, following instructions, put water in it, and that's not cooking a meal. I mean, cook a meal. They don't know how to grow a plant. I learned how to cook a meal and grow a plant in grade school. Just saying. And I'm only in my 50s. I'm not super, I'm not, oh man, spear go yet, right? They don't know how to use hand tools or power tools. I learned both of those in seventh grade industrial arts. Actually, sixth grade industrial arts. And I learned metalwork in seventh grade industrial arts. Again, I'm not that old. They do not know how to mend a sock with a needle and thread. I did learn that in school, but I admitted yesterday that's only because I took home because it was all girls in the class. And that seemed like a pretty, pretty, pretty good idea for a young kid at the time I was there, but at least some people learned it. 
They will not know how to form a well-reasoned thought and a logical argument. Because whenever they do, they'll be smacked across the head and face and shoulders for doing it. Because if they question anything, instead of being told, all right, let's discuss this and figure out why you're wrong, Johnny, they're told, shut up, sit down, and do what you're told. So they can't have a well-reasoned logical argument, and therefore they are incapable of identifying logical fallacies. Because if you taught them how to identify logical fallacies, it'd be impossible to teach them in the system that's been created built on logical fallacies. So we can see why they wouldn't be able to do that. I still think that someone with 13 years fucking education should be able to go, your argument doesn't make any damn sense because it's based on fallacy. If you can't do that, you're not educated. I don't care how you define the word. You've changed the definition to meet your agenda, which is also something that the state does. Like That's why there's literally been two revisions to what the word stabby-stab that starts with a V means in the past five years. They changed the definition of the word. If you are educated, you should recognize that there's a problem when you do that. That's just not something you're able to just do at a whim. You come up with a new concept, you come up with a new word for it, a new description of it, you don't change the existing language. To, that would be in a book called 1984 that I read in school. I'm pretty sure they don't read that in school anymore. It probably because it makes people uncomfortable, which is kind of the point. Okay? Um, they will not understand there's thousands upon thousands of career opportunities. I bet you if you take the average kid out of high school and say, Give me 20 good careers. They can't give you 20, let alone 100 or 1,000 or a couple hundred. I bet you most kids coming out of school can't give you 10. Because we programmed them to believe that a lot of the things that are just really great career paths are beneath them because they're so smart, even though they can't do any of this shit. They will not be able to do their own taxes. You want to know how I know that? When I was in the army, I was always entrepreneurial. And when I was in the army, I used to do taxes for guys. And I would do it for 20 bucks. I'll, I'll do your 1040EZ for you for 20 bucks. And I had a line of people outside of my barracks door to have me do their taxes. I had, guy, I had marketing like you wouldn't believe. Man, Spirico got me 470 bucks taking your stuff. It's a, full, it's a single page form. You're in the army. You have a W-2. You, you, it is the most basic form in arithmetic. I don't know how a person was able to join the army and not be able to fill out a form. Couldn't do it. And it wasn't they couldn't do it. They were afraid to do it. They were afraid to do it wrong and get in trouble. I don't want to get audited like a soldier with a single W-2 is going to get an audit. You've got to be kidding me. So they did learn fear of authority. They didn't learn how to do their taxes. The most basic, let alone like how do you actually structure your life so you pay less taxes? They certainly don't want to teach you that. Um, they do not know how to actually fact check a claim by government, media, etc. Don't know how to do it. They think looking up, is this true, and finding another mainstream media outlet that says it's true is a fact check. Or because of fact check sites. So how do you fact check the fact check? They don't know. How do you logically dissect an argument and determine whether or not it's bullshit or not? Or is it partially true? They don't even have the pattern recognition to go, this is something so off the mark I should probably check this. And don't think that's a liberal conservative thing because I have found honestly 
that the people that believe in bullshit the most, like when you look at social media and whatever, is the right. The right believes every single steaming pile of bullshit that matches their worldview. They don't check anything. They'll fact check the shit out of the left, right? But they will not for a second question something that backs up what they believe. And it's it's just ingrained in society at this point because we've been educated rather than taught. Right? Education, the way that they use the word today means programming you to believe things and answer things the way that we want you to rather than actually be taught how to determine the truth for yourself. They can't do a basic design and cost estimate on a project. You don't learn that in school. I did, just saying, in shop class, by the way. Uh, they do not know how to design a decent natural diet. And I'm not going keto, carnivore, whatever. I just mean, basically, you throw away the food pyramid and the food plate or whatever else the government tells you to do. And just sit down and say, what do humans need to eat? What's good for humans? What's bad for humans? This is what I should eat. No, eat your Cheetos. Shut up. Have your ding-dongs. It's okay to be fat. Take your Ozambic and it's okay. That's just you know $20,000 a year you won't have. But don't worry about it. Get on Medicaid and the government will pay for it. Yeah? And they do not know how to do about a thousand other things people in general could do just a few decades ago. I mean, Really? My grand, I watched my grandfather fix a carburetor on an outboard with a, with a, a pair of, a little pair of pliers and a screwdriver. And when I asked him how he figured it out, he said, "I just figured it out." We were sitting in the middle of the river, and the motor wouldn't start. I said, "Did you ever work on motors like that?" Not really, but it's kind of like a lawnmower. And today, that person would be out there firing a flare gun, waiting for the coast guard to get him in a river. You could have walked. You could have got out of. I mean, if we had had to, I would have got out of the boat. And walked the boat to the shore. But my grandpa's like, nah, I got this. Don't be getting all wet. We'll have to go home. Right? Like, all these things. You put a kid in school for 13 fucking years. Can't do one of these things when they get out. And most of the things that, if they're an A student, most of the things that they learned and regurgitated on a test, if you give them a test from 10th or 11th grade, 10 years into their career, they'll fail it. So what did they really learn? And the answer is they learned very little. They learned very little. If you learn something, if you really learn something, you didn't memorize it, you learned it. And you can apply it. And it's like riding a bike. When you learn to ride a bike, you actually fucking learn to ride a bike. If you ever knew how to ride a bike, unless something you have an injury and like inner ear problems or something, like I bet there's a bunch of you who have not ridden a bicycle in at least a couple of years. But if I gave you a bicycle, you would get on it and learn to ride it. You'd get on it and just ride it like you never never didn't ride it. The first couple seconds, you might oh, wobble a little bit. Muscle memory has to come back, but you just take off and ride a bike. Never forget because you actually learned it. Be like, well, you never learn how to, you never forget how to ride a bike. But you never forget anything you really learned. That's the truth. You might have recall issues from time to time, but the fundamentals behind it, if you learned it, you learned it forever unless something goes wrong. That's reality. Before we dig into this, let's go ahead and hear from our sponsors of the day. One of the things I'm going to say that you do need to learn about, and I mean you really do need to learn about, is money. Money's important. 
You know, John John Willis and I were talking on uh, on Monday about this, and we said when people say that uh, money's not important, there are always people that don't have any money, right? That's how you know that, that, that they don't have any money when they start talking about how unimportant money is. So one of the ways you can do that is improve your financial literacy, and a great way to do that would be start listening to John Pugliano with the Wealth Studying Podcast. John is a prepper. He's one of us. He grew up in rural Pennsylvania just like I did. He's from a family of blue-collar people, but he's made himself into a self-made millionaire through investing his income, and he does that as an investment manager now for others, but he made himself a liquid millionaire before he ever did that. And I really respect that. I've worked with John now since 2010. That's 14 years. And he's a member of the Expert Council. He does this awesome podcast. Again, it's called the Wealth Steading Podcast. You can learn more at wealthsteading.com. Next up today, you know, one of the most important things in your life, it's not all about just money, but it's water. Water's life. When we start, even we start looking into space and saying, where could we go and form a colony? First thing we're looking for is water. That's because water is you can't just create it, you know, from nothing. It, there's ways to actually get it out of the air, but it has to. You have to have the hydrogen and the oxygen, and a, and a system and a cycle that would allow that. So you need life for that, and we need liquid water for that to happen. Otherwise, you're looking for ice reserves on Mars or the South Pole of the Moon. So water is important. We know that, but how clean the water you're drinking is is important. And I want you to think about this. If you get a little notice from your water company, we have a boil water advisory. Not all the time, but usually that means there's been a problem for a while. We just became aware of it, and now we're telling you to boil your water that you've been drinking with the problem for the last week. If you were putting the water you drink through a Berkey water filter, you wouldn't have that problem. You would always be able to drink the best water you can possibly be drinking get all of the toxins and stuff out of your water, and Berkey's the way to go. It's got no moving parts. There's really nothing to fail. You set it up, you put water in the top, and clean water comes out the bottom. It looks awesome, and we're lucky to have back as a sponsor of the show, Jeff, the Berkey guy, Gleason, who's been around back and forth a couple times since 2009 with us. So check him out today at usaberkeyfilters.com. With that, we will get back to the main discussion today, which is, teaching children in some ways, teaching ourselves. But really what I want to talk about to you guys is redefining the paradigm of what an education is. So we've gotten to a point where we believe that an education is somebody can get a good score on a test. You know, an SAT or an ACT or something like that, which basically means you learn the definition of a bunch of words, some basic logical processing, and the ability to do high-order math. That's what it means. It doesn't mean that you know how to cook a fucking egg, or grow a plant, or have a conversation, or interview for a job, or properly do your taxes so that you get the money back that you're due, or understand a myriad of other things that, again, most people understood not that long ago. Doesn't mean you know what plant to not eat and what plant you can eat. Doesn't mean you know how to cook a meal. Doesn't mean any of that shit. So, what good is it? And I'm not going to say it's no good at all. I'm just saying that it's fundamentally limited versus what humans really need from life. And we got here in a weird way. If we go back before my generation, if we go back to boomers, right, most moms didn't work, 
So mom was home when Billy and Tammy and Sue and Debbie and Johnny got home. And most of the skills around the house, mom taught. And when dad was home on the weekends, you know, went out in the garage and learned how to do boy things. You went out with uncles and grandpas and went fishing and hunting. And while you're out hunting, grandpa taught you what a tea berry was because that was one of the few things you could eat. And you learned that way. And we had families teaching the kids. You get up into my generation, there was still some of that going on. But moms had gone to work. And we were left to ourselves. That was Gen X. We were the latchkey generation. So we had the opportunity to learn with real-world feedback. And we also still had the vestiges of an educational system that saw to a lot of these things. Maybe you had to take electives and all, but you learned how to cook an egg in school. At least some of the kids did. And you learned how to make a spice rack or a bread box or something. At least some of the kids did. And that meant in your orbit around you, there were, somebody knew how to do everything you needed to do. Okay? Somebody knew how to do it. Or, collectively, you took what you knew, and you used logic, and you learned it. And we had the freedom to figure it out. We went out, we broke bones, we skinned knees, we jumped bicycles over shit that no one should jump a bicycle. And somehow, most of us survived. Right? And we ended up the generation of doers. And it's not an ego thing. We just were. We were doers. And we thought to ourselves, as we became parents, you know... We were largely free-range, feral children, and we didn't think of it this way, but there's like, oh, what do we do about this? And we overcompensated. And we didn't give the generation that's the millennials, the Gen Zs, the freedom to go out and learn like we did. And society as a whole put a cap on it and said, we can't have these kids just running around by themselves. That's crazy. Something bad could happen. Yeah, something bad did happen. They didn't learn anything. And at the same time, my generation, since we did learn basic shit in school, we saw to other things because we figured, well, they're learning this stuff, which they weren't. And now we're here. And what we could do is we could sit around and bitch about it, or we could do something about it. Well, I'm going to tell you what you can't do if you want a result. You can't fix it. You're not going to, I don't, you can run for school board. You can take the whole school board over. You're not going to fix it. You can become a teacher, a principal, an administrator, a superintendent. You can make it better, but you're not going to fix it. The entire system is designed to be what it is, right? Stanford Beer. The purpose of the system is what it does, not what it claims to do. Yeah? So you can't fix it and you can't go. Fix the problem. You have to create a new system that sits adjacent to the problem and offers an alternative. We have to use the wisdom of Buckminster Fuller. You obsolete technologies, you don't try to fix them. Right? You create the new rather than bitch about the old. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And we need to start with a little bit more on the problem before we start talking about things we can do. And one is, how long does it really take to learn the daily things that you actually need to remember and be able to apply? So you can be Bill, the Lockheed engineer that couldn't answer the question on who's smarter than a fifth grader, but yet he's making 200 grand a year plus bonuses and making bank leading a team of 10 other engineers. 
Right? Well, how long does that really take? Oh, must take a lot of time. No, not as not as the fundamental underlying education. I can tell you that the amount of time it takes a kid to do the things that enable them to pass school well is one to two hours a day, five days a week. That's it. That's all it takes. Because I'm watching an eight-year-old and a 13-year-old do it right now. right? And when it takes longer, it's always they were obstinate, they didn't want to do their work that day, and we had to have an argument or a fight or some sort of repercussion for not doing it. If they come in, sit down, and hammer it, it's an hour to two hours. And you know what? That's about as much as it needs to be. Because if I put you through eight hours of lecture five days a week, you're not going to remember most of it. Because your mind isn't capable, and we can pretend that it is, but it's not. And we can make you take notes, send you home on the study guide, memorize a bunch of shit, and two weeks from now you can regurgitate it all on a test, and next year you won't remember freaking 90% of it. And that's why teachers get frustrated to have to teach the same thing they're supposed to know over and over again. But you taught it wrong in the first place. If you're taking your education like eating the elephant one bite at a time, one meal a day, eventually you'll eat the whole elephant and you'll appreciate the whole elephant. You'll appreciate the filet mignon of the elephant and the ribeye of the elephant. You know? And, and, and the stew that you made from the bones of the elephant. And you'll be able to describe all those meals. But if I sit you down and shove you full in one day, you'll feel sick, you won't want to ever eat an elephant again. That's how we do education. So we need to just be honest about the fact that the kids only need an hour or two a day to learn. And the current system, they're given six to eight hours of their life a day and coming home with two to three hours of work. And then you talk to teachers because they didn't learn basic fucking math themselves and say, why does my son come to your school for seven hours a day and come home with two and a half hours of homework? Well, I only give 30 minutes. You know he has other teachers in classes, right, dumbass? Can you multiply 5 times 30? Did they teach you that? Can then you divide that by 60 and see how many hours that is? That would be 2.5. And then they get mad. Well, do you want me to not give homework? No. I want you and your other teachers to figure out how much homework a week to give so that this 30 minutes you're blathering on about is the truth, which, is, which you can't do. And by the way, if they were doing their work and learning in school like they're supposed to, they wouldn't have any homework. And I know i got teachers mad at me right now. And you know what I'm going to tell you if you're a teacher and you're mad at me right now? I don't give a fuck. I don't care. This is the problem with the system you're in. And it, the only way you don't see it is you don't want to see it because your paycheck depends on you not seeing it. And you know who never objects to my discussions about education? Former teachers. Retired teachers. Every single person in my audience that I hear from that's not a teacher but was a teacher says, you have nailed this a thousand percent right. So, again, I don't care about active teachers not liking it. I'm sorry. You're the one who chose your profession. You're the one inside that system. And if you think it can be fixed from inside, let me see you do it. And that's when you'll tell me what you can't do. So I'll ask you who in that, su in that system can. And then you'll get mad at me. You'll write me an angry email in all caps, and I'll delete it. Hey, moving on. Um, you also have to think about why the state doesn't want children to learn these things. Every all you want to you want to see it. Look at medicine. Look at medicine. When I was a kid, I'm talking about a little kid, like grade school. We had a doctor that I got taken to if I was sick or needed something. His name was Doctor Carrier. 
I was never sent to a specialist except one time when he looked at me and said, yeah, you probably should have your tonsils out. Otherwise, he's your doctor. And my parents were not sent to specialists unless there was something specifically that was really outside of a general practitioner. Now, the first thing that happens is you're referred to a specialist for everything. You have a kidney issue, you go to a kidney doctor, right? You have a diabetes issue, the doctor puts you on some medication, but also sends you to a diabetic specialist, right? Everything has a specialist. Why? Because when we silo things, we have better control of society. And we create what's called compartmentalization. Bill knows Bill's thing only, and therefore everything that's not Bill's thing... We can make sure he has Gelman amnesia. He knows you lied to him about his thing, but he believes you about everything else because he doesn't know anything but his thing. We have created a society of specialists that are unable to do anything general at all. And that is by design. Next, um, you're not going to reform this. And if you're not a homeschooler, I'm not going to beat you up today. And I hope I never I hope you never feel like I'm beating you up for not being a homeschooler. I understand that not everybody can. I don't know how my son and daughter-in-law would do it if they didn't have us. I don't think they could. But what I'm going to tell you is because you can't fix the system. You can go to every school board meeting, you can go to every PTA meeting, you can write letters, you can run for office, you can lobby, you can I mean if you're rich, you can literally lobby like people to vote the way you want at a local school board level. You can do all that shit at a state level. You will not change the system 1%. And that means the things we're going to talk about today, you should be doing them with your kids and for yourself, whether or not you homeschool. This is not really about children, and it's not really about homeschool. It's about what you should have learned, what you did learn, and what you didn't, and how to make sure it doesn't happen to your kids, if you have kids or nieces, nephews, etc., grandchildren. Um, so let's talk about... I just want to make the rest of this series, like, this is a long intro, because it's the first one in the series. Going forward, I'm just going to go straight to things to learn and talk about them. And that's what we're going to start doing now. So number one is, um, I think, and I, talked, I mentioned this yesterday, every person should be able to identify at least, this is a minimum, effort here. 50, right? Right, one, two, three, four, five, count by tens, right? Uh, 50 plants, trees, bushes that are local to them. What they are, where they came from, and what you can do with them. You know, and if it's just, well, this thing's ornamental, but it's also toxic, so don't eat it, well, then that's enough. And so some of them could be wild plants, wild trees. Some of them could be domesticated, like the stuff that everybody plants. What is it? Where does it come from? Is it an invasive species? Does it end up like privet? Like, and what is the like? Is there a difference in a wild form? Just basic knowledge. Like, if you walk down the street uh, in a place that you are every day, and somebody points at a tree or a bush, especially one that's common, and says, "What is that?" You say, "You don't know." Wrong answer. And you might think, well, does everybody need to do that? Does everybody need to be a botanist? No, a botanist would be able to tell you like 
this is a clover of one kind and this is a clover of another, even though they look exactly the same to you. This one's variegated differently than that one. And they would know what variegated means if you don't. Right? And the Google will tell you if you don't know. I'm not going to tell you. But it's not a complicated thing, right? Um, I don't mean that way. I just mean a general knowledge because that is a knowledge of place. And it changes your mindset, you know? And so I think that's just that's a simple one. Look for something you do know what it is and learn a little bit more about it so you can actually explain it, what it does, where it came from, etc. And if you don't know, find out. Well, what is that? Keep researching until you make a positive identification and then fill in the rest of the blanks about it. Because I guarantee you this, you know, you could go to a place somewhere in the world, like where some indigenous society still live in the jungle or the desert or something. And you might say that those people are uneducated. But you walk through that area with a 15-year-old kid, and he'll be like, you can eat that, that's medicine, that'll kill you. Oh, don't touch that, it's toxic, and it'll make you have a rash. This thing over here, you can actually eat it, but it has to be cooked first, or it'll kill you. And if you touch it, it'll make you break out, and it'll, it's stinging nettles. That's the perfect description of stinging nettles. It's an incredibly nutritious plant grows all over the place. If you touch it, you break out in a rash and it hurts. It stings you. If you boil it, you can eat it. And if you fold it the right way so that you don't let the part that stings you touch your mouth, you can swallow it raw and it won't hurt you inside at all. Like, don't you think that would be good to know that this thing is edible but also dangerous? And, and so we should all be able to do that. Like I said, my son, who's like 34 years old, had that assignment in high school, or actually middle school. I remember helping them do it. Another thing, I think we should all be able to do scale drawings with graph paper. Like, sit down, get a piece of graph paper like this one right here. This is a design for a garden bed if you're watching the video. It's also a design for how I did my drip irrigation. Right? And I showed this to my grandson today. And the reason I did is because I've had him doing a project for the past couple weeks. He's now on his third phase of it. I have him making floor plans. I started out with, make me a tiny house. It can be no bigger than, I think I gave him a 200 square feet to work with. And these are the things I want to see in it. And he did that. And he didn't do a great job with it, but I also realized that's really hard to do for your first one, a tiny house. So I said, do a small house. It can be up to 800 square foot. It needs to have two bedrooms, at least one and a half bathrooms, a kitchen, and a dining room, and a living area. Have at it. So he did. He did a much better job his second time around, though he still struggled with some things about the scale. Like I would say, like, so you, you're going to set this table there, and this is how big you're planning the table to be. And I explained that we don't usually put tables there, but it was kind of how he was defining a dining area. And I'm like, but you only have two foot between the chair and the wall back there. And where's your doors and things like that. So we worked on that, and he did that. And when he got done with it, I said, okay, now I want you to do a 1,200-square-foot house to me. He said, how many bedrooms? I said, two, three, four, five, one, whatever you want. But you get 1,200 square feet to work with now. Now here's some new graph paper. Now you need to come up with a new scale because you're not going to have enough for each square to be a foot on your outside dimensions. And, and he's working on that now. And he, you could tell he didn't really... Like, go, yoo-hoo, I get to do this. So then I brought him in, in, over, and I had a conversation with him this morning, and I talked about this. And then I said, well, if you did this, 
Now you can figure out, and I said, you know what they're built out of, right? So first I said, what is this? He didn't know. I said, what on the property looks like this? He says, oh, your back garden around the, the pond. I'm like, yeah. And I explained the reason I had to do it to scale was 12 foot across the back, 8 foot across the center, 4 foot wide, and I designed it to have no waste material from the landscape timbers. And I also wanted it to be uniform in its distance around the pond, and I wanted at least six feet between them and no more than eight foot between the gaps and some other things. So, like, that's how I was able to figure out where to mark it out, how to do it, and how much material I needed. When we figured out how much material we needed, I said that then I went to Lowe's.com, and I started adding things to my shopping cart, and what was the first thing I wanted to know? And he said, I want my stuff. And I said, no, think about it. He goes, oh, how much it costs? Yeah, now I know how much it costs, right? This is a conversation with a 13-year-old, guys, okay? Yeah, he, so he snaps to yeah, you want to know how much it costs. I'm like, so now I can decide what. He goes, well, you want to do it or not? Bang on. Is it worth it? Do I need to go back and redesign it at lower cost? Or is it so inexpensive, maybe I can make it better? Like, but I'm like, well, what if I'm not doing it for myself? What if I'm building this for somebody who asked me to design it for them? He goes, oh, yeah. And I'm like, so... If this costs me, let's say, $2,000 in materials, am I going to sell the materials to the customer for $2,000? He's like, no. Right? And then he's like, I said, well, you know, what if I want to make 20% of the materials? is $2,000. And he had to think about it, you know. And I said, well, do 20% of $1,000. He goes, oh, $400. You have to mark it up. How much do you have to charge? $2,400. I'm like, great. I said, now, are you going to do it? He goes, well, you could. I said, what if you have employees? So you have to pay them. Then you figure out how much labor there is. You put a margin on that. I said, you just learned by drawing a picture how to run a construction company. And a light bulb went click. Now, I don't think he's probably going to run a construction company, but he realized something. And I said, Braylon, do you understand that when we watched the first Karate Kid movie and Mr. Miyagi was saying, sand the floor, wax on, wax off, paint the house, paint the fence, that the entire time... Daniel's son was doing the thing, he was learning a thing, and he didn't even know what he was learning. I'm like, trust your old man, Papa, right? I give you a project, you're learning ten things in one project, right? Yeah, Kelly said he also learned perimeter and the possibility area of complex shapes. Exactly. How much? He said to me, how much does one square represent? I'm like, how big do you want the house to be? He had to learn how to calculate square footage. Right? 800 square foot, 20 by 40. Okay, you got to go 20 by 40. How many squares do you have to work with? You can make your own graph paper. They can be smaller, they can be bigger, but you got to figure that out. He had to work all that out. Tell me that's not more valuable than learning. The mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. I bet most of you learned that in school. You don't even know what the fuck it means because you don't care, unless you're a biologist. Right? But you remember it because they made you memorize the words. Right? Okay, so the, the scale drawing of like a floor plan is a great one. How about just how to be able to make a pot of soup with no recipe, only technique and intuition? Anybody can follow a recipe. You learn technique, develop a little bit of like culinary intuition, like pork and apples go together, though I've never made a pork and apple soup, but you know, a a sausage and apple soup, maybe actually a sausage, apple, and squash soup, because squash and apple soup is good, and meat makes everything better. I could probably make that right now if I had all if I had it if I had squash, right? 
if I had squash and sausage and apples, I could figure out how to make that with everything else that's around me. Guarantee you. And what made me think of this one, I was watching videos on some platform, I don't even remember which one, and I think it was a Jamie Oliver video. He was making something, it wasn't a soup. And he had a bag of pre-chopped vegetables. And he said these he said these bags of pre-chopped veggies make life easy when you're in a hurry. And I don't talk about learning how to do things and chopping up vegetables isn't hard. But do you know what was in the bag? Anybody here guess? I've never seen a bag like this in the United States of America, by the way. And I'm going to see if anybody can jump to this with like logic and intuition in the live chat while I explain it. If you learned to cook classically, especially French, you would know those three vegetables well. Anybody got it yet? What those three veggies were? And those three vegetables would form the base of many things that you would make. Sauces, stews, soups, braised meat. There it is. Thank you, Tommy. Tommy Toms. Celery, onion, and carrot. Kelly says, mirepoix. Aaron, celery, onion, garlic. Nope, garlic goes in after the mirepoix so that you can cook the mirepoix down without scorching the garlic, right? Um, but yeah, like, so apparently in the UK, you know, we go to the store and they have all these, like, cut-up vegetables and stuff that you could just pre-made and throw in a pan, like, you know, peppers or something. But apparently in the UK... It's very common in their groceries to have bags of chopped celery, carrot, and onion, one-third each, small dice. You know what? I'm all for learning how to do that, right? I'm all for learning how to make your own. But I see a place, because it's whole ingredients. I'm sure they have organic examples. And I'm sure a lot of the toxins on our food here in the United States isn't there. But the point is, why would they have that in the UK or Europe? Because the average person knows how to cook with a mirepoix as a base. Why don't they have that in the United States? Because the average person doesn't know how to cook with a mirepoix as a base. It's that simple. If there is a market for a product, industry will make it. So, if we learn how to make a soup, starting with a mirepoix, then we can make a soup out of just about anything. Just about anything. I made one this weekend. It was fantastic. And my wife's like, where'd you get the idea for this? It was a... Basically like a Latin pork stew. Had some cumin in it. Diced up big old chunks of pork. I even put some corn in it. I know, you're supposed to be keto. Hey, it was one can of corn in a giant freaking pot. Like, it's just not that much. Just a little bit of sweetness and Christmas mixed in with it. Some jalapenos and some chili powder. She said, where'd you get the idea from that? I'm like, well, remember the 10-year anniversary party? She's like, yeah. I'm like, remember the place we did it that's out of business now? Mayo Misa? Mayo Misa? Whatever the hell the name of the place is. He goes, yeah, I remember that place. I said, well, when we went there to check it out, before we booked the the event venue. Now, think about this. Our 10-year anniversary. We just had a 15 last year. This is six years ago. I said, when we went there to try the food before we decided we would use the venue, I ordered a bowl that was very much like this. And it's been in my head since then. And I had some leftover pork from some meat cutting I did last weekend. And I thought, why don't I make that? And she's like, well, how close is it to what they made? I'm like, it's almost exactly what they made. No recipe. No recipe. Didn't need one. 
couple cans of Rotel tomatoes with green chilies, mild, so my wife wasn't too hot for my wife. It was delicious. But what did it start with? Onions, carrots, and celery. Why? Unless I'm going to go into kind of the New Orleans, you know, Cajun, and change that to the Trinity, right? Which is celery, onions, and bell pepper. That's where I'm going to start. And I'm just going to figure out, like, what was it? And Andy says, my wife has that ability. Your wife doesn't have that ability. She simply learned the skills necessary to show and demonstrate that ability. Andy, you have it too. You just haven't cultivated it yet. That's all. Right. Every human has the ability to walk, right? Unless there's something physically broken, but we have to learn. We have to learn. And left to ourselves, we will. If you couldn't go out and buy Kraft Macaroni and Cheese, you'd learn to make soup. I promise you. I promise you. So learn how to make a pot of soup with no recipe, only technique. And you know how you do that? You make a pot of soup following a recipe that has good technique with it. And then you next batch of soup you make, you go your own way. Go your own way. Very simple. First time I ever did it, I always heard about squirrel stew, squirrel stew, squirrel stew, squirrel stew. And finally I'm like, why don't we ever make squirrel stew? And my uncle and my dad and my grandmother and my grandpa all said it wasn't worth it. I said it has to be worth it or people wouldn't talk. No, it's not worth it. So I went squirrel hunting, shot a whole shitload of squirrels, quartered them up, thought about a few years earlier watching my other grandmother, my Italian grandmother, make beef stew, and basically did it the way that she did it, with a few modifications and added some things in it, like since we had so many mataki mushrooms around, some mataki mushrooms, and I made it. And you know what? Everybody in the family, this is amazing. How did you find out? I just put shit in there and made it. It, it, It's more about removing the fear than gaining the ability. If you know the basic techniques, you know, if you want to thicken a stew, again, I know keto, carnivore, whatever, I am not afraid to use a few tablespoons of flour in a giant pot of stew. You need to learn how to make a roux. It's butter and flour, and you cook it until the flour is well cooked. And then you incorporate some of your liquid so it doesn't form clumps. You stir it really well, and you stir it into your pot. That's it. Learn how to do shit. It will free you from so much. Next. Um, And these are going to seem very varied because they were designed to be. I've got... A hundred of these. We might do ten episodes of this, probably at least two weeks apart, so it doesn't become the homeschool or the uh, new education podcast. It's just a thing that I think we need to, to, to really expand our minds with. But a child, by the time they're 15, 16 years old, definitely an adult, and most can't, should be able to explain basic business operations. Basic business operations, and by that I mean profit, losses, wages, overhead, supply lines, markups, etc. Now, you have to ask yourself, why wouldn't we learn this in school? Well, not understanding it is one of the key pressure points that the state has to enact class warfare. If a person really understood business operations, there's a lot of people that think they're underpaid that might be thinking to themselves, shit, I don't have this company that I work for is in business. I don't know that I'm underpaid. I better work my ass off to make sure I still have a job. Because if you've never run a company, you don't understand any of this. 
And being a manager doesn't mean you understand running a company. Some managers really manage and run companies for the ownership. A lot of managers, especially in big companies, they know they're a little siloed. We're back to being siloed and compartmentalized. They have no idea in the, the grand scheme of things what it takes to keep a company profitable. If you, if you know this, you're going to take the same two paths that are available to you. Entrepreneurship and employment. Right? You're going to take one of them. But you're going to have a totally different attitude about either one. If you take the entrepreneurship path, you're going to do so with a lot more understanding and a lot, you're, going to get, you're going to go to success more quickly. If you take the employment path, you're going to have a whole different level of respect for the people that put skin in the game and built the company that you get the privilege of working for. Now, the problem with that is when somebody tells you you don't have money because the rich people took it all and the boomers ruined everything, you're going to say, I, I smell bullshit. It's coming out of your mouth, asshole. Well, if you want to run a divided society, you can't have that. So do you, I know that some people, if I say a 14-year-old should be able to explain the basics of business operations, would think that's, that's crazy talk. And you, you pull the average 35-year-old off the street, and unless they are an entrepreneur, they can't do it either. So it seems like magic. Now here's the big thing. Magic only seems like magic until you know how the trick is done. Then it doesn't look like magic anymore. And then you can even probably watch a really great illusionist and see where the trick happened. You can see the thing you never could see before because you know the thing that you're looking for. Well, when you understand basic business operations, somebody talking about it doesn't sound like a genius anymore. They just sound like somebody explaining to you, oh, I don't know, how water comes out of a faucet, gets in your glass, and goes down your throat. Like, you don't put a lot of thought into that because I open the thing, the water comes out, it goes in the glass, fills up, and then I drink it, I swallow it, it goes into my stomach. And later I pee. Right? You might not know all the process, but the basic process, you know, you understand. But when you don't know how the trick is done, and I'm sitting here explaining to you business operations, I sound like a guru, and I can sell you my course for $99.99 or $999. That's all a bunch of bullshit you could have learned on your own anyway. So you'll fall for it. Or I can tell you that you're underpaid. I can tell you minimum wage should be $35 an hour, and you nod your head like a moron with no understanding of what that would do to the economic situation. Zero. Right now, if anybody brings up minimum wage to you, if you understand basic business operations, the economy that we're operating in, what the average person is paid, the fact that less than 1% of full-time employees in America make minimum wage, you're like, you're full of shit and I don't need to hear from you. When Walmart has a self-imposed $14 an hour minimum wage for people that can barely breathe without professional assistance, we don't need to talk about this anymore. But if I keep you in the dark of how business operations work, you'll buy into all this bullshit. That's why you should be teaching it to your kids and to yourself if you don't know yet. You need to design a business completely fabricated. Here's a business. What does it make? How does it make it? Where does the product come from? Where do the materials to make the product come from? Is it manufactured overseas and shipped in and I'm just in charge of distribution and operations? Or are we building our own product or service? What does that look like? I mean, I remember being young and stupid, because I was. I wasn't always smart. I didn't learn all this shit in school. Definitely didn't learn basic business operations. And I remember like my first job in the telecommunications sector 
getting paid 13 bucks an hour and realizing the customer was paying $35 an hour for my time and going, what in the fuck? And then seeing a takeoff or a bid from my company that said the burden labor rate of a technician at my level was $30. And I went, bullshit! Well, I didn't understand. All the stuff that I used had to come from somewhere. Somebody had to procure it. Somebody had to oversee that. That person, some fraction of their salary was part of my overhead. There was an operations manager that ran the whole thing. Their salary was part of it. That was a building with the company name on it they had to pay for. And that was all apportioned across the people that were actually in the field doing the work because it was all support for them so that somebody could sell the job, somebody could close the job, somebody could QA the job, somebody could follow up with the customer, somebody could market the company. I had no idea. I didn't know. I was 22 years old, right out of the Army. I didn't understand where those numbers came from. I do now. Now it makes perfect sense to me. If I was back in that position now, knowing what I know now, I would have moved out of it more quickly because I realized I, was, I, I did that job for almost three years and I learned everything I really could learn from it in 18 months. That was the time to move on. But I would have been more grateful for it while I had it and I would have tried to suck more out of it while I was there, realizing that the real opportunity was the learning versus the income. But I didn't know that at the time. Your kids might be able to know that when they have their first decent real job. If you just teach them basic business operations. Again, we're back to wax on, wax off. Paint the fence, paint the house, right? Sand the floor. You think you're learning a thing, but you're learning 20 things when you learn one thing. And it becomes ingrained in your psyche, in your mindset. And don't think kids can't learn this stuff. And don't think because they look bored they're not learning. And don't think because their first stab at it doesn't sound like they really grokked it, that it won't be there for them when they really need it. Because how did I make the squirrel stew? Because when I was eight, I watched my grandmother make Italian beef stew. And somehow that translated itself into making squirrel stew from raw ingredients. And I bet you when I was eight and I watched my grandma do it, if you said, now go make a pot of stew, I probably wouldn't have been able to. It was there when I needed it. We learn what we need when we need it. That's what humans do. Uh, real quick, I am not paying that close of attention to the chat today, but if you have a question, there's how you do it, so you might get it answered if you're in the live stream. The word question in all caps, and I'll come back to them at the end. Um, also, those of you that have been super chatting me and stuff, thank you so much. I will acknowledge you during the Q&A, uh, because that auto stars. I have a setting in StreamYard that lets that happen. Uh, moving on, so basic business operations. How about how to calculate the total expense of any purchase decision? How to calculate the total expense of any purchase decision. This is something my wife does with the kids all the time when she takes them grocery shopping. Okay, there's two packages. One has six, one has 20. Which one's a better deal? Well, the one with six costless, but how much does each unit cost? Oh, the one with 20 costs less per unit. That's the better deal. Oh, wait, what's the expiration date on them? Will we use them all? Simple. Most people can't do it. I, that's one of the most simple things. And that's the most simple example of it. But I like to take it to a higher level. Garden hose, one of my favorite things to use for this, because what we're really talking about is price-to-value ratios here. You buy the cheap hose last two years or the good hose that last ten years. 
Then you have to figure out what's the cost of the hose per year. That is totally not the way that Americans calculate value. Every business owner calculates value that way. That's why I like business operations, right? Because business operations start to make the mind go that way. If I'm running a business, unless I'm in a cash flow crunch, I'm always going to buy the thing with the lowest cost across time versus the thing with the lowest cost now. Always. Because if I do that a thousand times in my business over ten years, I can literally increase my profit by probably a million dollars. I know that sounds crazy, but when you take all of it into consideration, not having lost time, what does it cost when the thing that costs you less that'll last two years and you didn't buy two of them so you had one in reserve and the employee using it pulls it out, tries to use it, and it breaks And they have to call you up, get the company credit card number, and run the, run the Home Depot while they're on the clock and get a replacement for it. Then, oh, gee, it's not in stock. You want to buy the product that will last and outlast the employee as a business owner. Well, you just do that in your regular life. You do that in your regular life. You make the calculation. When we, when we go on vacation sometimes, we will literally buy throwaway furniture because it makes sense. We go to the beach, the hotel charges, I think it's 30 bucks a day for an umbrella and two chairs. There for 10 days, that's $300. We go buy two really nice chairs and an umbrella, usually costs us about 80 bucks. So it's less money. And it, we say it's disposable, but it's really not. And like the last day we're there, we look around for a family that looks like they drove there with kids sitting on a towel with the wind blowing on them and go, hey, buddy, how you doing? My name's Jack. Nice to meet you. Yeah, you here? What, did you just get here? Yeah, okay. how long are you here for? A week? Uh -huh. Did you drive in? The guy's like, yeah. Like, they started with, what's with this guy, right? Oh, I'll tell you what, we picked this up when we got here. We flew in. We can't take it home. You can have it. And they always look at you like there's a catch. Look, man, do you, you know how much it costs to get a setup down here? Yeah, man, that's why I didn't do it. I got two kids. and I, You can have ours. I can't take it home. I'm just going to leave it on my, my porch for the, the hotel people to throw away if you don't take it. Well, let me give you something for it. No, I don't need anything. I got my money out of it. It's yours. Now I've done a good thing in the world, and I cost myself less money. Why? Because instead of being fucking greedy, and what can I get, I simply said, what do I want and how do I get it for the best deal? And part of that deal was being a, be a nice guy and give the leftover to somebody else. How simple is that? Now, if I was going to be there for two days, I'd give the hotel their 60 bucks and I'd go on with my life. It's not that one was better. It's situational due to the need at the time and, and the duration of the use of the item. Make your kid do that when they want a freaking action figure. It doesn't mean they can't have it. It doesn't mean they can't be a, a kid. Kids need to blow money on bullshit once in a while. But make them do the, the mental exercise. Do you really want to spend your money on this? It doesn't have to be that involved if it's a you know an Iron Man action figure or something. But, I mean, we do it all the time. Kids want something? You really want it? Oh, yeah, I really, really want it. Okay. Well, you have money at home because we give you a job and we pay you. If you want it, I'll pay for it. But when I get home, 
You have to give me the money for it. And a lot of times the answer is instantly, okay, I'll do it. Tell you what, we're going to be here for 30 more minutes, put it back on the shelf, think about it, and if you still want it when we're getting ready to check out, you can have it. Half the time or more, you know what they say? I don't really want it. The impulse was cut off by the math. Teach kids that, but teach yourself that. The next time you're going to buy anything, you know, if you make 25 bucks an hour, right? That's not a super high earner, but it's a pretty good wage, right? If you work 25, make $25 an hour, and, and to just to use round numbers, let's imagine we live in a fantasy world where there's no taxes or anything like that to come out of your check, or let's imagine that that's what you effectively make after you pay all that shit. And you're going to buy something that's $100. Bucks. Well, you think it's $100. Bucks. And I think there's a place to say, well, what does it, like if it's a thing, if it's an asset, and if it's something like that lets you grow food, and you're going to pay $100 bucks for it, but in the first year it's going to grow $200 worth of food, That prob- and if it's going to keep working after that, it probably makes economic sense. But there's another way to look at it. And Andrew's asking, is that an agorism flag? Yes, it is. Black and gray. That's the line between the black and gray markets there. We talked about that yesterday, too, I think, right? Um, anyway, um, you should look at that as that's four hours of my life. If you make $25 an hour after paying your taxes and shit, then a $100 purchase is four hours of your life. Will I give four hours of my life for this thing? If the answer is no... And why are you buying it? And we do that with the kids. Like, this is how much money you make a week. This is what you do a week. So this is, you know, maybe this is an entire week's worth of work. Now, they don't have to work that hard, but it still makes them think. It still makes them think. And it will. it's a seed that when they do work their ass off, because all of us that get anywhere some point in our lives do, They won't do stupid shit with their money because they'll say to themselves, Self, that's a week of my life. Do I really want to spend this money this way? Because let me tell you something about how we this impulse buy shit happens. Humans not that long ago were predominantly hunter-gatherers. We were hunter-gatherers, small-scale society, horticultural societies, for way longer than we've been consumer societies. Way longer. And even at a time when we had created what we think of as modern agriculture, which is about 10,000 years old. So I don't mean combines and, and GMOs. I mean the concept of we plow a field, we plant a grain crop, we harvest it, and we put it in a silo, and then we have bread for a season. As long as you had it. Even when we got to there, most people still had to do other things to earn a living in their life. They were hunter-gatherers. And so hardwired into our evolution is the fact that when we find a thing, And it's a good thing. We get an endorphin hit. And it's in so many hobbies. Like Dorothy and I, when we go to the beach, we love to collect shells. Those shells don't do anything for us. You know, when you find a really nice whelk or an olive or something like that, you can't eat it or anything. It's not food. It, it's rarer than the cockle shell. Maybe we think somehow it's prettier, but... If there were a hundred million of them laying there, it would be as common as the cockle shell and we would be less likely to pick it up. You get this 
endorphin hit. I found one. This one's really pretty. It's not damaged at all. Then we bring it home and we use it as landscaping around our porch. Some of you have seen it that have been here, right? And so it wouldn't have mattered if we just went out there with a shovel and a box. And we pretty much end up the same way, but we enjoy doing it. Or when you're fishing and you're catching lots of rainbow trout, right? And you have no problem catching rainbow trout, but when you catch a brown trout, you're like, ah, I got a brown trout, right? Like, or when you're picking berries and you see one that's really big and really lush and you're like, oh, that endorphin hit. We get it by shopping. That's why we have women who literally shop for a sport. They're, they're just following that endorphin hit. I got the thing. And that's why so many of the things, we buy them and we bring them home and then they're like our shells. Which, of course, we're just using them as a reason to walk down the beach and look for stuff. But, so there's no big deal when we put them in our garden pathway. But when it's something you spent your life force on and your money on, and you really don't use it, it's a waste. Well, if you start doing price-to-value ratios, you'll understand. One thing you'll understand is why I'm so damn successful as an Amazon affiliate. I bet I'm in the top 1% of Amazon affiliates in the world. Do you know why? Because everything in there is a price-value ratio. If I wouldn't buy it, I wouldn't recommend it to you. That's not just a catchphrase. It's not just a tagline. It's the truth. Everything that I put out, I needed it, I researched it, and I found it. And the very rare thing that I didn't get it for myself, somebody asked me, and I acted like I was buying it for myself. And then I followed up on the recommendation to make sure it was good if it stays in the catalog, right? Because it's price-to-value ratio. I want the best deal for the situation based on total value across time. Not the way we teach people to make purchasing decisions. And why would we? If everybody did that, our GDP would go down, not up. Our overall GDP, because how much of our GDP is bullshit? How many people have expensive workout equipment that serves as a place to hang clothing, etc.? Because nobody does a price-to-value calculation. You should also teach your kids or yourself be able to understand the basic principle of troubleshooting a problem. Troubleshooting a problem. Let me tell you how many people can't do this. So we had a problem with the cable distribution in our house. We had moved the television to a different wall, and we have a shit ton of cable plant in here. And I could have figured it out, but it would have took me a couple hours to figure out what the hell the guy before did, right? And I don't have, like, a cable meter or anything like that to check signal or whatever. Like, you plug in a TV and waiting to see if it syncs the box or whatever. And I'm like, you know what, screw it. Just call somebody get them out here. Dude shows up, has to be two weeks into the job at the most. Parks inside my property, inside a fenced property, doesn't put up a cone... Like you put a cone next to your truck when you're servicing. Puts one cone on each corner, opens the back of the truck, gets out the chalk blocks, and puts a chalk block on a flat surface automatic van, and puts a chalk block on both sides of the wheels. I'm like, oh, shit. Dorothy's like, be nice. I'm like, I'm not going to be able to. Comes into the house and completely backwards ass tries to troubleshoot. And finally, I'm like, look, I don't have time for this shit. You have to leave. You have to, and my wife thought I was being such a dick. So, new dude comes like three days later, walks in, talks to my wife, and goes, 
Oh, yeah, that guy had to be an idiot. Your husband was right. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's brand new. That's Because what do you do when you troubleshoot a signal? You find the signal, right, as close to the source as you can, and you go to the next place and you look for signal, and you go to the next place and you look for signal. And when you get to a place where the signal should be and it's not, it's somewhere between your last point and the point you're at now. And now you can say, it's in here. Right? If you have like a TDR, if you know what that is, you could look for breaks or what have you. But if it's routed somewhere and it's about the same distance, it doesn't tell you where it is. So you go through this basic process and anything's like that. You have a car. You go to start it. It won't start. Well, what does that mean? Does it go click, click, click? Right? Or does it do nothing? Do the lights come on or do they not? Right? So, I mean, the first thing you check is the battery. Is there power? Does the battery have power? It does. Okay, how does the power get to the ignition and to the start? And you follow the pathway. You don't even have to know the system to be able to logically figure it out. Patrick Rorman from MT Knives told me a story about one time. He fixed an x-ray machine for a dentist. And he said, I didn't know anything about x-ray machines. The dentist knew more about x-ray machines than me. But Patrick knows electronics. So he just checked everything from the place that the power started and where things were supposed to work. And eventually, I don't even remember what he told me. He told me the story 15 years ago and fixed it. Why? Because he's an x-ray repair technician siloed into a specialty? No. I guarantee you a guy that works on them every day would have done it quicker. But could the x-ray repair technician fix an air compressor? Most of them probably not, because they don't understand basic troubleshooting procedure. So I didn't say, make sure you go troubleshoot 10 different things. I said, understand the process. A 15, 16-year-old kid should be able to explain troubleshooting. Lawnmower won't start. What do you do? What's the first thing any of you would do, especially a 16-year-old kid in today's world? I can't get the lawnmower to start. You'd probably take the, the, the cap off. Right? And look in and see if it has gas. If it has gas, well, now you know you got fuel, but is the fuel getting where it needs to go? Is the spark plug sparking? Like, there's a basic way that motor works. It's very simple. It's a very simple system. But you start from one point where you can identify something is or is not working, and you follow the process until the thing that works stops working. And then you know somewhere in between those two points is where your problem is. If you're troubleshooting a fucking jet, a jet like fighter jet, freaking YF-22, the most advanced plane on the planet, or a lawnmower, the troubleshooting process is the same. Doesn't mean one's not more complicated and harder and you have to know more to be able to do it competently, right? You can't just diversity hire airline technicians. Whoops, I'm not supposed to say that. Maybe I'll go to jail or something for it, right? But but yeah, airline companies, right? Airline manufacturers, you're not supposed to hire people for diversity hires when they're working on airplanes. But the troubleshooting process is identical. You should teach your children how to troubleshoot. The next time they have a problem, don't show them the problem. Show them the solution. Ooh, that's an interesting phrase. 
When you are trying to help somebody solve a problem, don't show them the problem. Show them the solution. And the solution isn't replace this part. The solution is, how do I determine what needs to be done? Because if you show them that, the next time there's a problem, they won't just say, oh, this part needs replacing. Because maybe it doesn't. If you just put a new starter in a car, with today's manufacturing bullshit, maybe. But in general, the starter's been replaced recently. It's probably not the starter. Is it the battery? Is it a connection? Is it the... Okay, it's the battery. The battery's dead. Does that mean the battery needs to be replaced? We have to troubleshoot that. Is there something wrong with the battery? Or is there something wrong with the alternator? So the battery's not charging. Or is it just that we need to disconnect the damn battery and clean the damn terminals because they have a big, giant, snotty wad of corrosion built up on them and, and, and hook it back up, jump it, and let it run for a while and see if it starts? We just disconnect the battery while the vehicle's running and see if it keeps running. Yeah? Many of y'all know that little hack, right? But it's part of a process of troubleshooting. But you've already isolated down to it is a power issue, and this battery was dead. If you can jump start it, and it has a dead battery, you still don't know why the battery's dead, but you know the rest of the ignition system works, so you stop looking at that. Troubleshooting. Not hard. But what happens if you have a society full of troubleshooters? When you say, we have a problem at the southern border and the president needs this new bill to give $60 billion to Ukraine, person goes, wait a minute, the Ukraine system is not connected to the U.S. border system. Yeah? Border systems based on a border. What's the problem at the border? Well, fuck, we don't want people asking that question. Now, we can totally have a bunch of pissed off right-wing people shrieking about it, But we don't want them actually talking about the solution because some of the left-wing people might go, wait a minute, that guy's making sense, especially if they learn troubleshooting too. See? Wax on, wax off. You're actually learning how to block. Troubleshooting. You're actually learning how to detect bullshit. And you're learning how to troubleshoot. Kind of cool, ain't it? How about this? How to do basic automotive tasks. Not troubleshooting. Just basic automotive... The fact that you have to go through all the bullshit you do to get a little card that says you're allowed to drive, and my understanding in most states, they are still making 16-year-old kids, 17-year-old kids parallel fucking park when almost nobody parallel parks. So they got a parallel park, but they don't know how to put gas in a fucking car. I mean, there are literally people that do not know how to play. That's a lot less than it used to be because most places are all self-service now. Apparently, Oregon managed to switch to self-service without blowing anything up. I don't know if New Jersey has yet or not. I mean, it used to freak me out the first couple times it happened. Like, I'd be coming back from New York to Pennsylvania, have to get gas in New Jersey, pull into a place and just start pumping gas, and a guy comes running up. No, you can't do that. What the hell, dude? Get you like you're like, man. You better get the hell away from me. I work here. What is your problem? Oh, we don't have self service. What? All right, but people don't know how to change oil. Change a tire. You should know how to. If you drive a car, you should know how to put a spare tire on. Now I know a lot of new like my new car came without a spare tire. I'm gonna tell you that my car has a spare tire now. Okay? I'm not going to not have a spare tire. 
But you should know how to change a tire. You should know how to change a tire. You should know how to do an oil change. I didn't say you should always do your own oil change. I'm just saying you should know how. You should be able to explain the basics of how an internal combustion motor works. Just the basics. What a piston is. What a rod is. What compression is. What a power stroke is. What an intake stroke is. Right? What is the difference, not just in a car, but in motors in general, a two-cycle and a four-cycle motor? One is two strokes and one is four strokes. Yeah, but to do what? Just the basic mechanical understanding of something that you use every day is not unreasonable. Not unreasonable. You should be able to evaluate various careers as to workflow, earning potential, required education, etc. This is something I have my grandson doing right now. He has a piece of paper. I'll pull it up so I don't miss anything on it right here. Give me a second. It's called Career Worksheet. He has to fill this out for me. If I don't get one a week, he loses an hour of time the next week of his freedom. Like, basically, he gets an hour of restriction. And it's cumulative. So if, like, he gives me one this week, he doesn't get any problems from it. Let's say next week he misses. Well, he has to give it to me by Friday. So the following week he loses an hour of his free time. And let's say the next week he does it, so he's good again. But then the following week he doesn't do it, it's two hours. There is no upward limit. And the reason it's such a stiff penalty that keeps getting worse is because I expect it to be done, and it's for his own good. And it takes maybe 15 minutes to do this. This is everything on the sheet. Name of career. Education experience necessary. I'll put a link to this document in the show notes, by the way, if you just can't make one of your own and you want to do this. Education experience necessary. And there's about five, five lines he can write on. You know, whether you need a degree or whatever and how many years of experience before you really can do anything. Starting salary, median salary, top salary. By the way, starting salary and top salary, he absolutely understood. Median, I had explained, 50% make less, 50% make more, and the difference between that and average. So that was a little mathematical statistical conversation. And then describe the duties and daily activities of someone in that career field. That's it. Now, when I was a kid, if you gave me that, that would have took at least a couple hours. You would have had to call somebody that did the job and ask, and I don't know where you would have got the wage statistics from. Right? Maybe you go to the library and look some shit up, and you're reading a book that's seven years out of date, and it's 15 years old. Right? Like, so, it would have been a lot harder when we were kids. I told them every answer that you need to this is available through Google in minutes, so yeah, you're going to do it. But when he's done with them, he brings them to me. I three-hole punch them, and I put them in a binder. And he'll be like, I don't want to do that. Don't care. Go do another one next week. I didn't say to look up careers that you were interested in. You do whatever you want. I don't give him a list. You go find something. Once a week for a year. If it's a couple weeks off, call it 50 a year. Two years, it's 100. It's 100 careers. Four years, 200 careers researched. 15-minute little bites. You know what my plan is? When he's getting up toward that 18-year-old age, I'm going to take that binder and I'm going to give it back to him. 
you've already researched everything that remotely crossed your mind, including a lot of things that you forgot. Here's your own research into all the opportunities that exist for you in the world. And by the way, son, it's still only a fraction of them. You should have seen his face when I told him that eventually I was going to give it back to him. The circle completion in his brain through a switch. Now, I'm not saying the kid's perfect with this shit. That's why there's a consequence to not doing it. I'm saying, well, I had that very conversation today about handing it back to him. And it was like, oh, this really isn't just some bullshit Papa's making me do. This is for me. Now, if you're like, that's all good and well, Jack, but I'm 25 and I ain't got no kids. If you didn't do this when you were a kid, you should be doing it now. And you could probably do two or three a week. You, you be, I'm trying to figure out what I want to do with my life. Can you tell me 200 careers? No, then you haven't done shit for research. You don't know what you don't know, so you don't know what might interest you. You don't even know that there's a thousand ways to make a living that you've never heard of because you've never bothered to look. I don't know about you guys, but even though school was much better, I think, in my day than it is today, as far as seeing to teaching a lot of things we're talking about, I spoke to my high school guidance counselor three times in four years of high school. Once because I got in trouble and he was standing in as like the assistant dean and he wasn't really supposed to be there. So I talked to him two times. And when I told him I was going to join the Army, he said, okay, that's good. You have something. Yo, bro, way to go. Way to shape those. Mo- I don't even know what the dude had a job for. I mean, I graduated with like 400 kids. The dude met with you for 10 minutes. You could have met every student in the school could have met with him a couple times a year at least probably four or five you would think that a guidance counselor would be doing things like coming up with career days that weren't just a bunch of people trying to recruit the next level of people to do their shit but like actually research things say anybody has any interest in a career in science you know we're doing that today you know if you have a study hall, I'll give you a note you can get out, and we're going to have group discussion. No, I didn't do anything like that. So this is something we have to do for ourselves. And I had this conversation with my grandson today, too, about small pieces. I'm like, if I, I, I could make you do 10 of these a week for five weeks, and you'd have a whole year done, and all the paper would be filled out. You'd have all of them filled out. And if I sat down a week later and asked you about any one of those careers, how much would you be able to tell me about it? He's a sharp kid. Probably not much. Why? He said it's too much at once. I'm like, but if you do this over a year, right? If you do this over a year, then you probably will be able to talk to me about most of them. Because you have a whole week to kind of chew on the last one before you do the next one. And maybe the next one you will find because of the last one. And I'm like, when you research something you thought would be interesting, you find out, I don't want to do this, what do you not like about it? Well, what's something you can do where you don't have to do that? Don't worry about whether you think you're going to like this or not. Just find out about it. 
How many of you are going to do that now? I hope a lot of y'all that have kids, especially when they get old enough to be, when they're old enough to type a question into Google, read and understand the answer, they're old enough for this. Again, I'll put that form on the site under today's show notes for you. Right where the bullet point is that says to do it, right next to it, there'll be a little blue word that says link. Right where it says evaluate various careers to workflow, earning potential, required education, etc., it'll say link. Click that link. It's a word form. You can modify it, alter it, make it shorter, make it longer, whatever. Probably one of the most valuable things you can do for anybody, including yourself, especially if you're still young. Especially if you're still young. You know, my wife told me, she said, when I got out of school, there was like 10 things I thought I could do. An accountant, a pilot, a nurse, you know, a teacher. She had no idea how many things were out there and available. I really didn't either. And I was more of a, like, research book. Like, I loved when I got old enough in high school where they said, if you have a study hall and your grades are good, you can go to the library instead of study hall. Oh, man. Like, I was researching all kinds, anything I was remotely interested in. I, that's just what I do still to this day. You get interested, you just, just, just digest as much of it as you can and then move on to something else. Just classic, you know, typical polymath. Mindset. But man, I had no idea. Right? And like, I didn't even think about a career in broadcasting. I never for a minute thought that someday I would make a living doing a talk show. Because the technology necessary for me not to have to spend five years schlepping coffee for somebody and begging for a shot at a late night radio show and maybe making it someday, didn't exist yet. But when I saw podcasting, my entire life I saw led me to this thing that I could do for the rest of my life and do it the way I wanted to. Man, I can't even imagine the difference it would have made if I had this project when I was my grandson's age. Really think about doing this for your kid or kids. And this is one, you know, a lot of times when you're an uncle, an aunt, or whatever, you feel like you're overstepping. I can't see any parent objecting to this. This could be done. If, you're, if your nephew, niece, whatever, is old enough to email the form, make it something that can be filled out and mailed back to you, and you hold them accountable. Give them some incentive, positive or negative, whatever works better. I talked about my, my wife about this today, too. I'm like, once you understand the, point, the uh, pain point on a person... Then you apply pressure until you get what you want. Some people you need a pain point. Some people you need a pleasure point. But you apply, apply the necessary leverage. But imagine walking up to a 17-year-old kid that's just starting the thought process of, do I go in the military? Do I look at a trade school? Do I apply for a college? Do I start sending up college applications? Do I just go look for a job? Do I take a gap year? A kid's in that state that most kids go through at some point. And you walk up to him and go, here, here, 200 careers you already researched because I made you. Start paging through it. Remember what it was like when you had the imagination of a 13-year-old because you were 13. And now that thing that you said you didn't want to do, who knows? Who knows what it will lead you to? So simple, so powerful. Why don't they do it in school? Because how many kids wouldn't go to college if they did this? Matt Powers, when he was a teacher, almost got fired because he had children build a financial model of what the education would cost versus the career. 
Are you kidding me? National Teacher of the Year Award. No, no. The system that you can't fix, that's a bad... Because Johnny started going home to Mommy and going, Mommy, I know you said I should go to UC Berkeley, like you did, and I want a career in this thing, but this is going to cost me $200,000, and I'm going to have to work for 20 years to pay that loan, and that $200,000 loan is going to cost me $700,000. Well, son, where'd you come up with these numbers? Mr. Powers made me make an Excel spreadsheet. Well, he's the problem. Yeah. Yeah. That's a big part of it. There's an entire group of industrial complexes that make their existence, their parasitic existence, off false beliefs. And the willingness of children to sign themselves up for a lifetime of debt that cannot even be discharged through bankruptcy. There are some kids that that system is perfect for. This exercise will help that child determine what their path really is when they get there. Right? Your college indoctrination just cost you a house. Right? How many kids are out there today saying, I'll never be able to afford to buy a house and they owe more money for their education across time than a house would cost? Just think about it. This is a strong one. Do it. We also need to teach people how to calculate the cost of ownership of things like cars, houses, pets. What's a dog cost? Well, the dog was free. What's a dog eat? Dog food. How much is dog food? How much is that a day? How much is that a week? How much is that a month? Dogs have to go to vets. What's a regular vet checkup cost? What do the vaccinations cost? If the dog needs spaying or neutering, what does that cost? How much time do I have to dedicate to taking care of the dog so the dog has a good life as a dog and is not some, you know, just random animal that's there like a plant? If you want a plant, get a plant. Don't get a dog. What is the cost of the dog? It has to be walked. You have to walk it. You like walking it? Are you sure? If you had to be paid to do it, what would that cost? That's part of the cost of the dog. It costs you your time. I love dogs. My dogs are family. People actually get mad at me sometimes. I can see it in their eyes because they realize, like, I value my dog more than them while they're a, 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 a visitor at my home. But of course I do. My dog lives here. You're a guest. I'm not going to let the dog jump all over you or every, anything like that. My dogs have to be obedient animals in their home and good citizens of the home. But yes, I value my dog more than some person that came to visit me the first time I ever had you in my home in my life. Of course I do. I value my dog who sits at the foot of the bed when my grandkids spend the night. He sits at the foot of their bed on a 45-degree angle watching the door, and he'll literally kill anybody that tries to hurt that kid. Of course I value him more than you. Are you going to do that? No, then the dog. But still, the dog has an expense. The dog is a dependent. I have to feed the dog. If the dog gets hurt, he has to go to the vet. And that's just one thing. What is the cost of ownership of a car? Well, it's $328 a month or $458 a month. No. It needs gas. It needs oil changes. It needs service work. It needs insurance. What is the cost of ownership? As soon as you start calculating cost of ownership, you start making more intelligent decisions about whether I want to own something or not. Some vehicles I buy. Some vehicles I lease. Do I have a rule, buy or lease? No. I have a financial calculation based on why I want the vehicle in my life, 
how long I plan for the vehicle to be there, and what the total cost of ownership will be across a decade. If it's a lease, it's probably three vehicles across a decade versus one. But what kind of vehicle? For what purpose? An incredibly reliable, dependable vehicle for my wife to drive when she picks the kids up every day? Or a fun sports car that I'm going to keep for 20 years and have probably 50,000 miles on after 20 years? I'm going to buy one and lease the other. Something with a high resale value versus something with a low resale value? How much money do I lose when I drive off the lot with it? You might think the one that you lose less money is the one you're more likely to buy. No, it's the one you're more likely to lease because the better terms of the lease you're going to get and your lower cost of ownership and some sucker has to pay the burden of the cost who buys the car used because they can't afford a new one. Because I calculated lifetime ownership costs and I'm not emotional. Poor people love to own shit. A lot of times they own shit that they don't really own. They own debt. It's my car. I bought it. How many payments? 72. You know that's six years, right? You know that car's worth in six years. How many miles do you drive? Like, you don't own anything. And you'll never own it. And you'll trade it in before you pay it off. If that was the case anyway, why didn't you lease it? Because then I don't own it. Emotional response. And you get wealthy people, I'd ever want to lease everything. Again, you're being emotional. You think you're better than other people or whatever. You do not make a decision that way. Car ownership is a business decision. It needs to be made like a business person would make a decision. A loan to go to college is a business decision. Not an emotional one. But tell me it's not made emotionally 99.9% of the time. It should be a very simple thing. What is the value of the degree? What is the cost of the degree? If the degree costs four times its value, then it's not a good degree. I don't care what you read. I don't care how many times you saw a shooting star go across the TV screen. I don't care what your dreams for little Johnny or little Debbie are. If you pay four times the value of something to get something, then it's a bad deal. But an education is priceless. Not all educations are priceless. See, that's false equivalency. You see, like we'll talk about logical fallacies in the future. But saying, I trust stabby stabs as though all stabby stabs are the same, false equivalency. Might want to teach that one. That's a little bonus for today. Um, how, about, how about this one? How to introduce yourself to a stranger and start a conversation. But Jack, my child, somebody might abduct them or steal them. Well, don't send them out on the street talking to some random homeless dude on a corner. There's places for this. But you need to go out and make friends, Johnny. Never teach them how to do it. Act as if when you were Johnny's age, you just walked up to people. Hey, my name's Johnny. What's your name? Like, you didn't do that either. Right? How important is this skill? Well, it might be really important. If you're in any type of influential position for a company someday, including your own, like sales or marketing, it's all about being able to introduce yourself. How about when you want to ask a girl on a date that you don't know yet? You just kind of know of her. Just go up and ask her out, Johnny. No explanation of how to start a conversation. You can break that down to a formula. 
Hello. What's your name? My name is. What do you do? This is what I do. It's not hard. But you know what? Like anything else, the more you do a thing, the more confident you become at it. I'll relate it to something that seems totally unrelated, and it'll make sense when I do it anyway. Okay? How about this? When I bought my first boat, I didn't even own it yet, right? This is before I bought it. I took it for a test drive on the lake. The guy that ran the boat store hooked the boat up to his truck, and we were five minutes from Lake Louisville. Got in a truck with him. Girl I was dating at the time jumps in the truck. We drive out to Lake Louisville. He backs the boat up. He takes it off the trailer, pulls it up to the dock, and we get in, takes us out of the harbor, explains a few things, and says, here, drive it. I was totally comfortable driving the boat. Right? We had this little boat when I was a kid with a little trolling motor on it, right, and a little outboard that was on my grandpa fixed. It went on a trailer, but it was like you pushed it up on the trailer. Like, this was not sophisticated. Never had driven a powerboat, like a real powerboat in my life. A little bay liner. It was like a 18-foot bay liner fishing ski. And I hauled ass all over the lake in it. And we pull back up. He kind of shows me how to pull up to the dock, and we tie it up. He goes and gets the truck, so stay with the boat. Backs the truck up. I was shitting a brick the first time I put that boat on a trailer. But dude's like, just do what I tell you. Like, no, He's like, if you buy this, you're going to have to do it. And I want you to buy it, so I want you to know you can do it. I put the boat on the trailer and like, give it a little more gas, get it up on there. Okay, click the thing, crank it up. This is how you strap it down. You pull it out, drain it. And I'm like, oh, okay. Now, I bought the boat. The first time I put it on the trailer by myself, I was a little nervous, but I had done it. By the time I had taken that boat to the lake for like the fourth time, putting it on the trailer was like second nature. Like, it's just, you just, yeah, you know, okay, you know, put the boat in here, go home, right? Put the transom uh, protector on the motor and, and, and strap it down and go home. It was a pain in the ass more than it was anything to be apprehensive about. Everything in the world that we do is like that. It's always hard before it's easy. It's always scary before it's boring. And meeting new people is, I'm an introvert or whatever. It's a formula. Hello, my name is. And then something about why you're there. That's why I love all these workshops and stuff we do. There's no reason not to introduce yourself to anybody. And there's the formula is so perfect in those situations. Hey, what's your name? And guys, look, I'm well known at these things. Most people there know who I am. I still use the formula myself. I learned it when I was a salesperson. Hi, what's your name? Right? Oh, Jack, I listen to you all the time. Okay, we're not here to talk about me. I'm here to meet you, right? You know all about me. You know my kid's name. You know my dog's name. You know where I live. You know what kind of vehicle I drive. You probably could look in the parking lot over there and tell me which one of those is my car. So telling me about me is no big deal. You need to tell me about you, but your person, what's your name? Everybody knows what their name is, so they say their name. Where'd you come here from? Right? Oh, we drove in from, oh, that's a pretty far drive. Did it go well? Right? 
This is a secret to making friends or at least getting introduced to people by yourself without a third party and not being awkward. Talk about them. That's all you have to do is get them to talk about themselves, which is the same to them as talking about them. People love to talk about themselves. Even the person says they're an introvert. No, they really do like to talk. We all like to talk about ourselves. It's easy because we know the subject, right? So here's an example of this. This was a study. I think I read this in a book by, I think, Harvey McKay years and years ago. But was somebody in that space. I think it was in Selling the Invisible, which I'm pretty sure was Harvey McKay. But there's a Doug name stuck in my head, too. It might have been that author. Um, he said that they did this experiment. They took a guy, and he sat in first class on the airplane, and he flew from Los Angeles to New York and back like six times sitting in first class. Now, sitting in first class, you've got two seats, you know. Even if you got a two-in-one, he made sure he was on the two side. So you got somebody sitting right next to you. It's actually really easy to start a conversation with somebody in first class on an airplane. They're always going somewhere, right, or going home. So you got something to talk about. But they're also happy because they're not in 31B in the back, right? Without being able to recline and they're going to get a glass of wine or whatever it is for them. And like it's going to be a long flight. And hey, this person, as long as they're not too jabby jabby, if I'm not, not busy working, they'll talk. So he talked to these people. And he was able to engage them in a conversation for almost the entire flight. Now, L.A. to New York is a long flight. Then they had a third party. You know, know who that person was and say, hi, I'd like to let you know that you were part of an experiment. And I'm wondering, like, walk with you to baggage claim and just ask you a few questions about it. It involves a gentleman that was sitting next to you. And every single one of them, like, sure, that guy was great. So they would ask him their opinion. Of this. Oh, he was incredibly interesting. Oh, he was one of the best conversations I ever had. And on and on it would go. And then the, the person asking the question would say, What's his name? You know, I I don't I don't know his name. Where's he from? You know, I I don't think he said he must have said where he was from, but I don't I don't remember. Right? I don't I don't remember. What does he do for a living? The answer was he was a psychologist. That's why he was perfect for the experiment. Nobody knew where he was, what his name was. Where he was from. Didn't know where he was from. Didn't know what he did for a living. Didn't know his name. Most fascinating person I ever spoke to. The entire conversation was about them. You want to know how to get a date or a job? Make the conversation about the other person you're talking to. Teach kids how to do this. You make friends. You find relationships. You also filter people as to ones you don't want to have relationships when you do this. Because the most important thing that you need to know about a person, whether or not you want to forward a relationship and go forward with it, whether it's a friendship, a partnership, you don't need to know about you. Now, they should want to know about you. Don't get me wrong. But you don't need to know who you are. You know who you are. You need to know who they are, what their moral compass is like, what their ethics are like, right? Right? Teach kids how to do this. 
We send kids to school and say it's for socialization. Then we don't let them talk to each other. Then we don't teach them how to actually introduce themselves to somebody. And then we tell them toward the end of their high school career to go get into college without an understanding of how to approach an influential person who can actually get you, you know, your, your, your college application approved or go find a job or what have you or go find a life partner or whatever. We never put any effort into teaching people how to do it. I just told you most of what you need to know, by the way. It's not hard. It's not hard. Let's hit a few questions and some thank yous here. And there's a bunch of thank yous today. You guys must have really liked this show. K-Bonk with a $10 super chat. Thank you so much, sir. Um, JD Drafts, $4.99 super chat. Thank you. Legendary Farm and Homestead, $0.99 cent super sticker. Thank you, sir. And Legendary Farm and Homestead again, this time with five bucks. I guess I hit something that he really liked. And he said, I make butternut apple and squash soup, sausage soup every winter. It's absolutely delicious. You know, that's the thing. I just thought about that on the on the podcast. I've made squash soup and I've made soup with sausage in it. I've never made apple squash and sausage soup. But just in that discussion, I'm like, well, that would go together. I mean, people make pork and apple and chicken apple sausage all the time so clearly pork and apples fit right pork and apple fits what do i do with apples well i also make apple and squash soup well why not put it all together see it's simple uh ricky says question i just logged in sorry if you've said it already or it doesn't fit with what's going on or what homeschool program do you use again looking for recommendations uh acellus a-c-e-l-l-u-s acellus academy And there's something you should know about Acellus Academy. Uh, give me a second. So I'm going to pull it up on screen for you guys because I want you to see this because it's so, it's such a good deal that I think the instinct is this can't be true. And so when you're at Acellus Academy, you can enroll your learners. And you can see that there's tuition. And the basic is $249 a month. You also see this here. It says $79 a month with the Roger Billings Scholarship. Well, what is the scholarship program? Okay. All the scholarship program is there's a weekly lecture, one hour. And it's done for all the kids, like K through 12. So there's some low-level fun stuff and there's some high-level stuff. It makes the younger kids stretch a little bit and whatever, and you watch the video, the Science Live broadcast, Wednesday at 7 p.m., and you can watch it, and it's recorded, you can watch it after the fact, if your kid's doing something at 7 p.m., but every week you have to watch it, and to prove that you watched it, all your kiddo has to do is make a comment on the page that the video's on. And your tuition, right... Your tuition drops from $250 a month to $80 a month because you took that extra step. You might wonder, Jack, why in the hell would they do that? Well, it's because they are uh, the people behind the National Academy of Science, which is a college where it's something like 98% or 96% of graduates pursue a, a career in their field of study, which blows away anything else, and you can't go to it. You can't go to it for money. You don't get into it with money. You get into it only with a scholarship. Only with a scholarship. It's 100% alumni funded. It is an incredible opportunity. 
And for alumni to keep funding something like that, you need high-caliber people coming in, and they're grooming kids because some percentage that go through that funnel will come out the other end highly aggressive at pursuing a STEM degree. So that's, that's the kind of organization you're dealing with when you're dealing with a cellist. That's part of why we picked them. Uh, the other part is they make it easy. They just really do. Tyler K. says, as a business owner who brings home roughly 50 an hour, uh, Pat generates revenue for the business at a rate of $80 an hour. How would you value your time, all else equal, for saying no to things? Okay, so what you're saying is you make $50 an hour, but you generate $80. 30 is absorbed by the business. That's how I'm taking this question. How would I value my time? Well, at minimum, $80 an hour. As to do I say no to a thing? It depends. It depends. What would I do with that time if I wasn't doing the thing? So, if what I would do with that time is work in my business, and it's going to cost me... Let, and you also have to look at your how long will it take you to do it. So let's say it takes me five hours to do a thing, and my value is $80 an hour. It costs me $400 to do it. If somebody's going to charge me $100 an hour, but do it in two hours, it costs me $200. I don't care what they make an hour. I care what the cost of getting the thing accomplished is. Then I also have to say, well, this thing... If it's not done perfectly, will it really matter? Do I need a professional to do this? If it's going to be aesthetic and I have to look at it forever, then I'm willing to pay more for it and not do it myself. If I'm going to do it on my weekend or whatever, I'm giving up my free time, but I'm not giving up my income time. So I think you have to be careful with that. But it is generally what I do. Like If it's going to cost me more to do it than to let somebody do it for me who will do a better job than me, and I can focus on my business, then that's what I do. But you should, you should, now, if it's your business, then $80 an hour. If it's somebody else's business and your value to the business is $80 an hour, your value of your time is what you bring home. So you can't be like, well, my burden labor rate is $80 an hour, so if it's less than that, then it's worth doing. No, you, what do you make? So it depends. Your business, you would pay somebody else to do the value of your work and have business overhead absorb it. So you have to think like a business person in that situation. Uh, Jesse S., real quick before I go on, because the problem is there's a lot of snake oil salesman type, investment guru type people who use that formula all the time to sell their ideas. And it's not easy, always a one-to-one -one exchange. It just isn't. Uh, Jesse says, is this series going to have an age-appropriate projects like scale house projects, say, eight and up? Uh, the, the, that's your determination. I think most of what I did today you could do with an eight-year-old, most of it, not all of it. But you can break a piece off to start prepping the younger student so that as they get older. And I guarantee, you know, you can make soup with an eight-year-old, I promise you. You can explain the cost of ownership to an eight-year-old. They won't understand it as well as a 13-year-old. But if you explain it to them when they're eight and explain it to them again when they're 13, they'll understand it better at 13 than if you didn't explain it to them when they were eight. Right? But in the end, you have to make that uh, 
appropriate. And then Jesse says, and the allowance chore system you had. The book, I don't know that I'll ever rewrite it. I'm a grandpa now, not a father. But I had this book for my son, and maybe I should recreate it. I don't know whatever happened to the soft copy of it. My son might still have the hard copy somewhere, but I bet you he wouldn't be able to find it. But he had jobs every week, and he got paid. And I'll just give you the basics of it, because you could do this easy enough. So let's say that his job on Monday paid him a dollar, right? And he didn't do it. He didn't do it. Well, somebody had to do it. So I did it. It cost him a dollar. But net it cost him two. He didn't get his dollar, and he had to pay me to do it. So he could make, let's say, eight years old. I usually paid him his age for his weekly allowance, $8 a week, and I would break it up into the jobs every day. But let's say the Monday job was a dollar. Well, now he didn't get that money. So let's say he did all his other jobs that week. Well, I gave him the $7, and I made him pay me the dollar back. I made him pay me the dollar back. I didn't do a payroll deduction. That's the sucker's way. That's why you don't understand how much you really pay in taxes and all the other bullshit. Because you just say, in the end, I make X dollars a week that I take home. I never wanted him to think that way. So I, when he got a fine or had to pay a bill, he had to pay it back. He got his way. And if, let's say that he owed me $5 at the end of a week, and he only got paid 3 Well, here's your 3 Go find yourself two more dollars somewhere and pay your bill. And there were a lot of things built into this. He had a 401k with a match and some other stuff. And, you know, I basically gave him a system to work and hoped that he would work it to the maximum. I wouldn't say he ever worked it to the maximum, but he worked it. I even, you know, saw him at one point pay friends to do some of his jobs for him and keep a little bit for himself. But he also worked out, like, I could give them the money I get for cleaning the dog shit up every week, which is the best. It was like two bucks. But I'm still ahead because I, I don't have to also pay the two bucks back. So it cost me two instead of four. So I, I remember he had one of his friends for like a few weeks in a row. He had that poor kid picking up all the dog shit. And I said, well, how much do you pay him? He said exactly what I get. I said, you can't make any money that way. He said, yeah, but now I don't have to do it and I don't have to pay you to do it. So you just graduate, boy. So it was things like that. And you can get as creative as you want to. Uh, but put it in writing because that's how you're fair. I also had some stuff that I talked about my grandson today. And I repeated it like five times. You can see him start looking at you like you're stupid. And I said, well, I just don't want to not be fair. Because you kids always want fair. So if I make sure you understand it and I tell you what I'm going to do and I keep my word, is that fair? And he goes, yeah, right. Um... And then Builder of Castles said when we were having that discussion, your college indoctrination just cost you a house. That was just a comment that was made. Anyway, I appreciate everybody for being with us today. I hope this ends up being a really fruitful series. Uh, we will do quite a few more of these. This one almost went two hours in the future. They will not because a good 30, 40 minutes of this was the lead up to it. Probably two weeks from now we'll do another one. We'll go straight into it. And anybody that wants the lead up, can come back and listen to this. With that, if you like this show and the work that we do, I want to remind you that you can help 
support us by doing your online shopping starting at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. You know, two things we talked about today. One was cooking and one was price-to-value ratio. Today's item of the day has both. It is an end-grade, end-grain wood bamboo cutting board. I've, I've brought this product around a bunch. I bought mine in 2018. I still love it. It's thick, it's heavy, it has rubber feet on the bottom so it doesn't slide around when you work it. It's got handles you can grab when you're moving it, kind of recesses into it. One of the best things it has, though, is a juice groove. There's a groove circumnavigating the whole uh, outer edge. And that groove, when you put a nice piece of steak on there right off the grill and bring it in the house, it catches all of the juices that leak off the steak and it doesn't leave a trail with the dog following you licking your feet. You don't get it all over your hands. That's why I love the juice groove. I love end grain bamboo. The big thing is, this is a cutting board that works perfectly. It performs beautifully, and it's only $69. Bucks. And it is a, if you take care of it, which means you wash it and occasionally put mineral oil on it, it is a lifetime purchase. Buy once, cry once. Like I said, I'm all about price-to-value ratios. Uh, so that's today's item of the day. You can always find the item of the day and everything else I recommend at tspaz.com. And every time you start your shopping at tspaz.com, you help us out and the work that we do. I want to remind you again, for those of you thinking about joining the Members Brigade, we just added uh, two new vendors. I really need to officially announce one. We did it kind of as a episode, but Steven Reisner uh, has three of his classes with $50 discounts for each class. Uh, so potentially $150 worth of discounts. And Easy Digging, 10% discount. I just bought some stuff from them. I'm going to be showing it to y'all. I found them because of the job, Jab Planner, but I just bought some of their hose and stuff. And I worked something out that you need to know about Easy Digging if you buy from them. Orders over $100 ship free. And I was basically able, even with the discount. Now, if your discount puts you back under $100, you pay shipping again. Just so you know that. But... I was able to basically get a $24 add-on product for free by going over the 100 and not paying the shipping. And I thought that was pretty cool. Plus, I got my discount at 10%. So we have some new discount providers in the MSB. EasyDigging.com is one of them, and they are just fantastic. Again, guys, I really appreciate you. And we have Adrian is now you know, jumping on the Eka Mouse and Rachel Bandwagon in a positive way. It says, hit the like button, people. Uh, we only have 44 likes, and we had a ton of people here. So if you're still here and you ain't hit the like button yet, please do it. Uh, subscribe to the channel if you haven't. Tomorrow, Expert Council Q&A show, Friday flashback. We'll do it all again starting next week. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. Dollar down the dollar.